Cut, and this is the K Cut. My name is James. I'm a content creator. I produce and release music under the alias Boutique Paul. I'm one half of the Parentese Podcast. I'm part of the Films Fatale writing team, and my primary interests include 70s cinema and no budget cinema. I'm Rachel. I also write for Films Fatale, and I am primarily interested in classic cinema as well as lost movies and world cinema. I'm Andreas. I'm the creator and one of the writers of Films Fatale. I love art house and international cinema, but I also love a little bit of everything. Um, welcome, welcome. So happy that you're here to join us. And uh, this episode is a very interesting one, and perhaps it's something that we can revisit in the future if it works out well. Um, I came up with a topic this week. I felt like doing something a little, a little silly, a little random. I figured we love our favorite films. I mean, that's a given. But we also know the characters inside and out. If we've seen the films again and again and again, um, we know them as if we know them like they're real people. And instead of just having a different casting choice for a lead in some of our favorite films, I thought, what if all three of us pick one film that we love, know pretty well inside and out, enough that we could, you know, um, nominate it for such an experiment. And what if... Just like clockwork, the leads of these films hopped over to the next film. So if the film that I picked, the lead is played by somebody in James's pick. And in James's film, it's the person who led Rachel's film, and etc., etc. So it's a big switcheroo of the lead performers. What would that look like? Now, a quick stipulation before we continue. This is... Um, because we're going to be hopping around different eras, they are going to be performing, you know, as the age that they are in the films chosen. So, for instance, if it was a young Robert De Niro in Taxi Driver, and uh, the film that he's going to be in is The Departed, Jack Nicholson's part, it's still going to be the younger De Niro in 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 The Departed and the older Nicholson in and Taxi Driver. So this is going to be a bit of a weird experiment. We'll see how it goes. If it doesn't go well, we at least have some flash fire questions in the second half that we're highly anticipating. We're completely unprepared, so we don't know what we're going to be asking each other, or like what we're going to be asked, rather. And that should be a lot of fun. And I hope this is, too. So um, the three films that we picked, and we'll get into our findings soon. Rachel picked Cabaret by Bob Fosse. Uh, James went with Drugstore Cowboy by Gus Van Sant, and I went with Mulholland Drive by David Lynch. So, who wants to go first with this Frankenstein of an experiment and what their possible outcome might look like? I'll go first. Okay, so what is your cabaret going to look like? Okay, so I transplanted Naomi Watts into this. And the thing is, Sally Bowles, the lead character, comes from several different sources. She was a real person. Or uh, she may have had a different name, but she was a real person. She originally came from Christopher Isherwood's stories. And then there was a, sta a stage musical. So you've got all these different sources coming into the film. So I kind of picked whatever I could from all those sources. So we now have Naomi Watts in this role. Now, I'm not overly familiar with Naomi Watts's career. But um, I think it'd be interesting because she strikes me as very different from Liza Minnelli's style. As we discussed during our Sterile Cuckoo episode... Liza kind of has this sort of sweet but exhausting mode about her. She's kind of, uh, you know, Manic Pixie Dream Girl style. 
And I don't see that in Watts at all. I see her as a much more grounded Sally Bowles. But because Sally can be read so differently, you can really take any take on her you want. And it's pretty much going to land. So, no, I don't think she could do the Dizzy Dame thing so well. But I do think that she could be sort of the run-down Sally much better. Now, the big question is, Cabaret is a musical, and can Naomi Watts sing? I looked this up, and she can kind of carry a tune, but she's not a singer by any means. Like, she's fine. But this is the rare role in musical theater where I would argue that singing talent doesn't matter. Within the context of the stage show, and especially the movie, Sally's only singing... um, is within the context of this sleazy club in Germany. It's not a particularly grand place. So why should Sally have to be particularly talented? And to back this up, I don't know if either of you know this, but Judy Dench was actually the original West End actress for Sally Bowles. Judy Dench definitely can't sing. Like, she she can get by, but she is not the grand musical theater star Liza Minnelli is. And Um, I can understand why they played Sally the way they did in the movie, because when you've got Liza Minnelli in her voice, yeah, yeah, gotta play with that. But for Naomi Watts, I think if she can kind of croak out a song and look really disaffected while doing it, that's good enough. So, yeah, her singing talent's beside the point. Overall, I think it would be a darker take on Cabaret, much closer to the stage version, but I think it would be overall pretty successful, and... All of you listening should go listen to the Judy Dent version. It's very different from what you would see in the movie, and it's on YouTube. I had no idea about the, uh, you know, the Judy Dent version, and I feel like um, because for the listeners at home that, that wouldn't know this, we came up with the switcheroo like last week, and we've had a, a few days to really flesh out what this might look like and your big question was can Naomi Watts sing and that felt like the nail in the coffin as to whether or not this would be good or bad but it sounds like it actually might be fine if she couldn't yeah if she kind of Judy Dench's role has a lot of attitude and is very gravelly and so I thought that might work just as well with Naomi Watts because yeah this disaffected woman who's been through so much at this point it works. How do you feel about Naomi Watts in general, like, just being a part of, like, the new Hollywood movement? Like, would Naomi Watts overall as an actress fit in nicely with the late 60s, early 70s? You know, I think I would throw her in the classic era. I think she's got a certain polish to herself that would suit, say, the Howard Hawks time much better. Actually, that's a fair point. I feel like I feel like that would be very interesting. Having said that, I feel like Cabaret even though it's a new Hollywood film, definitely is rooted in that type of era. So I feel like um, it would still work out. Exactly. Exactly. Amazing. So I guess the final question before we're ready to move on is, uh, it sounds like you would pay to watch this. It sounds like it would be a success. Yeah, I I would watch it. Um, I wouldn't go out of my way to watch it, but I think it would be worth an experiment. And, you know, maybe Naomi could play the role on stage. Well, she's probably a little old for it now, but could happen you never know so uh that's where naomi watts uh found herself um liza minnelli has gone to a different era and a different film entirely where has young liza minnelli gone james drugstore cowboy by gus van sant oh my goodness so she's playing i'm assuming the matt dylan character yes so i was trying to think of how this would look because it's like i'm not very well versed in Liza's career, but I know the prestige of her career, especially with her lineage and just, you know, I mean, she's such an icon in so many different regards. 
it would be really interesting to see her play a drug dealer and drug addict. But I was actually kind of, I found it kind of interesting because I'm the only one who picked the movie with a male lead and Matt Dillon's character has a wife. So it, it, obviously I think gay marriage wouldn't be legal at this time. So it's, it would be like Liza Minnelli would have a character would have a girlfriend. I think this would be interesting because it would be one of those rare moments where like somebody seen as one thing would be kind of juxtaposed into this completely unhinged role because it's a story about a drug dealer and addict, his wife and their two friends. And they rob, they rob drugstores and pharmacies and deal and just, you know, kind of live in this, I don't know, state of uh, blissful ignorance to the world around them. So, yeah, it's, and I'm a big fan of when actors kind of step away from what they usually do to kind of play these more like darker roles. Like it's almost like, um, like I really like Jake Gyllenhaal and Nightcrawler. Cause I, I wasn't expecting him to go for it. Cause like you see the kinds of stuff he does. I mean, he does like the dramatic roles, you know, he's known for daddy Darko. And then, you know, obviously it's like, you know, he's one of the Hollywood pretty boys, but then for him to be an unhinged sociopath, I always think it's great. So yeah, I don't know. I think if she used, If she did what she did in the sterile cuckoo, I think that might work. Where this kind of person who's seem fakes sure of themselves, but isn't really sure and just constantly annoying, even though it's not really their fault, it's more their circumstance. But yeah, I would, I would, it's, yeah, it's interesting too, because it's a completely different era than when she was younger and relevant. Because this is 1989, so this is just right around the corner from the 90s. So that, I think I think that would be more interesting. And you you said the the they remain the age they were in the film there that we chose, right? Yeah, yeah. Because otherwise yeah. you'd have like a 40 year old Liza Minnelli, so or infant Naomi Watts. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So she would be early 20s. Am I right, Rachel? Uh, uh 1989 or which character? Sorry. Or like uh, Liza Minnelli in 72. Yeah, she was uh, kind of 20, uh, she was 26 or so. Oh, okay, okay. that's perfect. Yeah. That's perfect, because mm-hmm. I, I, I don't, they, they never really stated ages, but it's like, you know, the cu- the main couple's kind of like older, but, you know, I think that could work with 26. Yeah, I don't know, I, I kind of want to see a role like that from Liza Minnelli now, just like, just really dark, because it could also be, because the thing about this role is, Everything seems like going well, even though these people are ruining their lives. Matt Dillon's character kind of has a downturn and he just kind of is just sort of wasting away. Like, you know, there's an incident where uh, one of their friends ODs and then, you know, they the couple splits up and then he ends up there's I remember there's a scene he's getting robbed. And, you know, so I think it'd be interesting to see somebody who is kind of known for being like this prestigious character. You know, I mean, playing in musicals, it's it, they're kind of like a kind of like a dreamlike character be more grounded. Liza does dark really well though, as well. I mean, in uh sterile cookies here a little bit and cabaret, you got some snippets of it as well. I feel like it's a big reason why she won the Academy award for that role. Um, her bouncing out of tones and whatnot. So she can play like the, uh, the scene stealer, but she can also, you know, when it comes to like a film that deals with like, you know, addiction issues or like, you know, the, the criminal underbelly of like, you know, these uh, people just trying to get by, I feel like she would nail it in all honesty. I think that, yeah, I think, I think her background with the musicals, what I think would lend to the first half of the movie because it's like, they kind of act like pirates 
it's almost like a game and an adventure to them. So I think she could bring that kind of energy. And then once things start to turn, I think she could kind of be more like in the sterile cuckoo where things just kind of like fall apart and she's just trying to hold on. Yeah. I, again, I feel like she would actually be a very interesting lead for this. So I guess the final question is, would you, or you've already basically answered if you feel like Liza would fit in with today's, um, or like, you know, that era's uh, style and whatnot. Would you pay to see uh, drugstore cowboy with Liza Minnelli as the lead? Yeah, I'd, I'd pay for it. I'd, I'd give it a shot at least once. I mean, what's the worst that could happen? Fair enough. Fair enough. So, uh, Matt Dillon was uh, kicked off of his perch by uh, by uh, Dancing Liza, and he wound up in that vacant spot in David Lynch's Mulholland Drive. So, uh, on one hand, I don't think this would work at all unless there were some minor, minor changes. So, if we keep it as... As is, as much as possible, we have a younger Matt Dillon who would be replacing Naomi Watts, which uh, I need to r- refresh myself here. Have both of you seen Mulholland Drive? Because I don't recall. I have. I haven't. Okay. I don't want to spoil too much. So. I know the spoiler, so. <laughs> okay. So, uh, even for the listeners at home, though, when I say he would literally be replacing Naomi Watts as Betty that would be a little more difficult and it wouldn't really work as well. Having said that, if you look, and this was completely unplanned, who would be picking what film and what order and everything. If you look at Matt Dillon from Drugstore Cowboy, there's somebody else in the film that he could be the double of. And that's Matt Kesher, or sorry, and that's Adam Kesher, played by Justin Thoreau. And I feel like if you go that route... You could have a completely different perspective on the Mulholland Drive experience, and I actually think it works brilliantly. So instead of focusing, yeah, instead of focusing on the star, you're looking at the filmmaker, and you're looking at the the parallels of the split mind of a creative, uh, of a creative person being told what to do by producers, and I feel like there's something substantial there. Plus. Off the top of my head, I don't think Matt Dillon's been in a David Lynch film. I, in fact, I don't think he has. I feel like he'd do really well in a Lynchian universe. So, um, yeah, right off the bat, I feel like it could be really interesting. That might be when you say when you explain it like that. That that is an interesting take. I think that could work. That could be cool. Yeah, but if it's like a more literal replacement. Everything crumbles. No longer is there the believability of the uh, the cascading and colliding worlds. No longer do you believe in you know the idea of the double from Betty's standpoint. But um, you know the mirroring of of Adam Kesher that would work. That but you would have to do some fine tuning. And unlike uh, both of your films, I don't feel like neither of you had to do as much. I feel like mine, uh, we would have to go back to the drawing board a little bit, shift it around. But because Adam Kesher has such a prevalent storyline, I don't see why it's impossible. So, uh, Matt, as for Matt Dillon adapting to the 2000s, I feel like that's self-explanatory. The guy did. I feel like he would be perfectly fine. Um, finally, when I see this, if this was just a literal replacement, I don't know if I would. If this was reworked so he mirrors Adam Kesher's character and he's like Bob instead of Betty, 
Yeah, I feel like there's something brilliant waiting there. So I would be very, very excited. So, listeners at home, please let us know what you think of these Frankenstein experiments. Um, otherwise, we're getting into our, our flash fire questions. We haven't done this in a while, so I'm very excited. Um, so basically, we've each come up with a question for the other two people to answer. We can answer our, ourselves as well, if we so desire. And basically, the only criteria is they have to be movie or TV themed. So, who wants to ask first? I'll go. Okay, what do you have for us? What is a film you've seen in theaters that you instantly wanted a refund the moment the credits hit? <laughs> oh, God. There's a lot of those. Do you want to go first? Oh, I got one. Okay. Uh, rumor has it. Oh, God. And it, yeah, it was a Jennifer Aniston, one of her 20 million forgettable rom-coms. And I think Kevin, I always have trouble sorting out the Kevins, but this was Kevin Costner. And... The idea was her family had inspired The Graduate. So she was the daughter of the character Catherine Ross played in The Graduate. And then so so the Kevin Costner character had had an affair with both Jennifer Aniston's mother and her grandmother. And this movie was just a giant mess. Um, it had a lot of really cringy and now problematic jokes. It was just a concept that did not hold together. The actors were trying, but they were not able to salvage this disaster and yeah i went to this as a teenager so i'm sure my parents paid for it but um it was it, i i'm sorry mom and dad that i spent your money on this <laughs> i actually saw that in theaters as well and when i saw it i was so young that i hadn't seen the graduate so especially look there, yeah. there are some films where if you see them and you don't have context, it's like, okay, well, it, it could be a little bit better had I had context. But this film, if you've never seen The Graduate, this is a complete waste of time. Like, it just doesn't really explain or justify it for those who have never seen the film. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I, just, I, I recall really being bored out of my mind <laughs> with that movie. And, I mean, what was the point of making this movie, like, 30 years down the line when, like, you know, The Graduate had faded into the film? It had gone into the film canon, but it certainly wasn't the top of everybody's film list at that point. I mean, is there really a time for it at all? Because if you do it recently, like, as soon as it was made, yeah. like, within the last, like, the 10 years afterwards, it's too soon. And then, you know, as you just pointed out, it's too late. They're, they're, for something like this, you have to do a really specific, worthwhile source material. The Graduate's the type of film that stands on its own. Like, it just seems really stupid. And, like, for that subject matter where it's, like, uh, you know, like a, you know, a high school graduate looking for his future who gets groomed into a relationship, like, it... Why this? <laughs> like why? Well, I'm reading here. It's uh, it's actually the inspiration is uh, it's the inspiration for the novel. So that actually that makes it even right, weirder context because yeah. Oh so it was a novel first, and it was the base for the novel. So that makes it even more so because that was out a few years earlier than the film. If I'm reading correctly. Yeah, I just don't see how they thought they would make money on this thing. Outside of you and me. <laughs> Outside of Rachel and myself, who actually went to this. Oh, uh, uh, God. Yeah. No. I mean, Rachel, or 
Generation, it was just coming off of Rachel and Friends. True. Because it's 2005, so I think they were just like, Jennifer Aniston, it'll sell. Yeah, and I think it did, it wasn't a total flop or anything. I think it was, like, reasonably okay. Yeah, just critically it was, but, like, to some people that doesn't matter. If you make money, you make money. Um, <laughs> I, I, I'm i going to feel bad saying this because of one beloved actor that's in this. Um, I saw Old Dogs in, in a theater, and... I, oh my goodness, um, I just, oh my goodness. So, in case you don't know, it stars John Travolta and Robin Williams, the late Robin Williams. Um, literally, and Matt Dillon, there you go, things come full circle, I guess. Um, basically, the premise of this film is, these are veteran actors being older, and they're making fun of them for their age, and that's pretty much it. It's one of the biggest wastes of time, unfunny attempts at comedy I think I've ever seen. And yeah, I don't know if either of you have seen this, but I despise old dogs. It was so, such a blatant, like, cash grab, and I don't know. Have you seen it, Rachel? No, but I've, I've, I've seen enough. Okay, so <laughs> like, yeah, it, it really is. There's, like, one attempt at, like, some plot going on, a minor, minor attempt, and I say that because when this little event happens, basically the one son of one of the characters, I think it's Robin Williams, his son or grandson, I don't even remember at this point, um, feels ignored when he's trying to give him like a picture that he he drew for him. And it's like, oh, no. Anyway, back to geriatric hijinks and like completely like no resolution, no answer, no lesson, nothing. It's just let's watch two older actors who were once respected be treated like punching bags and idiots. It's a waste of time. Apparently it was Bernie Mac's final posthumous performance. Oh, Oh, I'm sorry you went out on that, Bernie. Yeah. And you know, you have some other people in this, like, uh, I'm pretty sure this is what killed Justin Long's career. Cause I haven't heard from him since. So <laughs> yeah, this, this movie sucks. What about you, James? So mine was star Wars, the rise of Skywalker. Oh, God, that one's bad, too. I was so... The whole time, I was like, it can't get any worse. And then it just got worse. And by the end, I was like, you know, I'm just done with Star Wars as a whole. And I think it's... So there's a lot of complaints about the sequel trilogy supposedly being unplanned. But I remember hearing somebody say that this isn't the case because it was designed to be built upon by the next like creator... Unfortunately, after The Last Jedi, J.J. Abrams decided to take hold again and make a completely reactionary film that just tried to backpedal everything that was established in The Last Jedi. And I was like, really? Like, originally, it was supposed to be, I think, Colin Trevorrow was supposed to write and direct, and then that didn't happen, which I almost wish it did. And uh, also, they ruined Kylo Ren, who was by far one of the best characters to ever come out of that entire series. Yeah, I find the worst sin of that movie wasn't even that it was that terrible. It was just so forgettable. Also, just certain choices of the story. I was like, why? I'll never forget a couple of things. The first one being uh, Senator Palpatine is alive somehow. (laughs) Oh, I hated that. (laughs) So there was that. There was... um, Oh, God, one of my least favorite things. uh, A lot of people bring up uh, Kylo Ren, which is... uh, you know, for good reason. I have to bring up Donald Gleason, who I feel like was also, you know, he played a really interesting character who was reduced to a really awful, dorky informant, which just, first off, doesn't even make any sense. Secondly, that to me alone was worse than Jar Jar Binks. Like, 
Like, I've never been as angry with a Star Wars film outside of that moment where it's like, I'm the spy. Like, no, you're not. <laughs> no. Like, oh, moving on. I hate this movie. <laughs> yeah, it's, I don't know. I was just, it was just one of those things. It's like, there are people who like it. And I'm just convinced a lot of people like it because they're just happy there was another Star Wars movie. But I just think, like, what what could have been? You know, it was just, yeah, I don't know. It Because to me, I love The Last Jedi. In my personal opinion, the only film better than Last Jedi is Empire. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is ex- an extremely hot take with Star Wars fans, but yeah, I don't know. I, I think it's just how you kind of you fumble the bag when you you had it. Yeah, I don't know. I just I I think we just need to let big franchises be laid to rest after a while. Yeah, they need a break. Like I honestly want a few years where I never get to hear about Marvel ever again. Yeah, I, I no longer want to Marvel over Marvel. Um, Rachel, what is your question for us all? Okay. Um, So if you could take one movie within a movie, that is films that are mentioned within either a movie or television show, I'll I'll open it up as much as I can, and make it real, which one would you pick? Oh, I need to think about this, but that's an excellent question. Film within a film. Oh, I have one. Alrighty. (laughs) What was the movie being filmed in... um... Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Oh. Mm, which one? There are a few of them. The, the one that he was shooting. Like the the one with Timothy Oliphant. The cowboy one? Yeah, it, it was the one where they actually showed footage of him like on set. Was it, was it the one where he was a cowboy or was it one of his Italian ones? Oh, no. It was, yeah, it was when he was a cowboy. Okay, yeah. And, and he befriends the little girl. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Yeah, I'd, I'd want to see that. That would be cool. I, I think that'd be interesting because like, I liked... I liked what they shot. I also liked the uh, re- the way they shot the re- when he set- wanted the reshoot and they pulled the camera back. I thought that was a really great shot. Apparently, Tarantino played with the idea of actually doing that TV show, like some episodes of that TV show that uh, what's his name was started and known for. Which I think that'd be pretty cool too. But yeah, I think I think that'd be fun to see that like actually play out. It would. Rachel, what about you? Um, so I've thought about a few different ones. Ultimately, I went back to the easiest, which was Hail Caesar, because there's like 17 fake movies in that. And I don't want the biblical epic. I'm not particularly interested in the one where Scarlett Johansson swims in a circle. So I think I want to do the one Rafe Fiennes was directing, where he was hopelessly trying to train uh, train Alden Ehrenreich to say all the lines. And I won't spoil how they resolve that, but it is perfect. It might be my favorite moment in the whole movie. Uh, the Channing Tatum dance movie might be fun too. Oh, where he's like that was a like great the, scene. The Navy yeah. troop. But I definitely want the wood that it was so simple to be real. Yeah, that could be really interesting too. Jeez, I I'm like struggling to think of something. Um, you know, this kind of reminds me of um, I saw um, Planet Terror and Death Proof in the theatrical release of when it was a double feature as Grindhouse. And they had all those fake trailers. Oh, yeah. And I always thought that was cool. And then they actually, like, a couple of them actually got made. That's cool. I didn't realize that. Because, uh, well, Robert Rodriguez did two uh, Machete movies. And then um, Hobo with a Shotgun was actually made into a full-length feature. Yes. Yes, I recall that. Uh, I'm going to bend the rules a teensy bit. So this is, uh, does a play within a movie count? Sure. Okay, I'm going to go with the version of A Streetcar Named Desire that you could see snippets of in Pedro Almodovar's uh, All About My Mother. Which, okay. Yeah, I feel like his vision of it, even though you see like small snippets of it, just the vibrant colors of the set, um, just 
that, every time I see it, it's one of the few instances where I'm watching a film and I'm like, I want to see more of this. Not less of the movie itself, because it's one of the greatest films I've ever seen, but I would pay if this was a special feature to watch this entire production of Streetcar uh, done by Almodovar and Friends. Please. Great. That sounds like a good lineup all around. Yeah. Otherwise, I, I actually have a, a fairly similar question. So um, this could be interesting. So this is uh, one of the last months, I hope, that I'm doing research on television series. And I have come across some series that have been inspired by films or films that have been inspired by series like Ticker Terror Soldier Spy, which is inspired by the miniseries, for instance. Which film would you love to be expanded or adapted into a television series? What would you eat up instantly if you said, or if you heard that this film was turning into a series? God, that's a hard question, because the films you really like, you tend to like because they're based the way they are. Exactly. So it's not necessarily your favorite movie, but what would be like, what would, like Persona, the TV series would not be, I, I don't know if that would work, for instance. And then the ones I can think of already have then. Oh, like what? Oh, like um, the Hannibal series and all that stuff. If it Ferris Bueller was a series. Oh yeah. Also starring Jennifer Aniston. Yeah, um, my girlfriend uh, taught me that, and that blew my mind. I was like, it was. Um, Mini series counts if you want that. So it doesn't necessarily have to be an ongoing seven season something. Well, what's yours? I feel like something that could be done or treated as an anthological something or other um, would be, it's kind of a double answer and I'll tell you why, but it's like the main answer is Chunking Express by Wonka Y. The second answer would be Fallen Angels, which is technically, it was supposed to be the third story of Chunking Express. So that kind of alludes to the point as to how this could actually function as a, as a series. So perhaps it could be something that's anthological, like how Fargo is done, where you have these different stories, but they all take place within the same vicinity. Or you could have something that's a little bit more episodic with these same characters because they're so interesting and you get these slices of life through them. I feel like it would be something that would maybe harken to like how Atlanta is is laid out something where each episode has a different vibe, but they all are part of this big uh, commentary of a whole. So that's what I would go with. I would absolutely love a series based on Chunking Express. Oh, ha, I've got one. Uh, since you recommended me for the Spurs Motor Dario Argento film, I'd like a series, a prequel series for Suspiria. Like a, like a limited one? or Yeah, like a limited prequel series, just like... Just like the history of the, um, oh, what's it called? What's her name? The witch in the movie. Oh, yeah. I, I don't recall, unfortunately. Yeah. Like, like, like maybe you have a limited series, like through the ages leading up to that point. Okay. Because it's like, it, it, it gives you a taste of something that obviously has history, but you just don't see it play out on screen. You just kind of see like the tail end of it. So I think that might be fun. Yeah. Actually, I could see that. Like, kind of like what Hannibal. Or not? No, sorry, not Hannibal. Um, uh, Bates Motel was like. I think I would like the a miniseries that was the true story of the Von Trapp family from The Sound of Music. Ah. 
because the movie compressed it so much that it looks like the entire story happened in the course of like a year. And it really was a far more complex story than we realized. Um, it was, um, it, first of all, they'd been married for about 15 years when the whole events of the movie happened with having to leave Austria. And then it would go into their, um, lives in America as they were touring singers and then the eventual development of the musical and film. And I think it would be a very interesting glimpse at sort of how different um, 1920s to early 30s Austria was, and then sort of the the way that the war changed everything, and then how this family adapted to having to leave and then grew into this institution. So, yeah, and it would clear up a lot of myths. I like this approach because... Uh... You know, I was thinking when I came up with this, like, what do you love so much that you would just want to keep experiencing it? But you're viewing this as what could have been solved or told better through a series. And I, I actually like that approach. Yeah. Um, for example, did you know that uh, the real Maria wasn't super into Captain Von Trapp, but she really wanted to be a mom to his kids? So even though they, did, they eventually grew to love each other, it was really more of a convenience marriage. Well, in the movie, they're like completely hot for each other. So that's just one difference. Okay, yeah, because in the movie, they have like that, uh, that brewing tension between each other, and it turns into a chemistry. Yeah, okay, so that's interesting. It had nothing to do with that. Mm-hmm. And fun fact, when they're singing that song where they fall in love in the gazebo, they thought the song was so stupid, Julie Andrews and Christopher Plummer, that they had to put shadows over their faces because they kept breaking into stupid grins. Oh my god. <laughs> I did not know that. Wow. Um, I'll have to revisit that, but that that says a lot. <laughs> well, that's it for our Flash Fire section of this podcast episode. Um, before we let you go, though, we've got some housekeeping work to do, so... Over to you, Rachel. All right, so you can find us under the K-Cut on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And I'm just pulling up the list of our smorgasbord movies this month. So the individual picks are going to be Opera by Dario Argento, Trances by Ahmed El Manouni, and Puditang by Louis C.K. And then our collective is O Pagador de Promesas, written by Anselmo Duarte. Um, Whenever we bring up that film, you're going to say it from now on. Because I've just realized I've been butchering it this whole time. I I probably am too. I I only know like a couple of words in Portuguese. So yeah. More than me. Well, nonetheless, thank you so much for listening to the K-Cut. That was the K-Cut. We hope you stick around for the next episode. We've got some exciting stuff coming. So we are now going into the L-Cut. L-Cut.